There's something remarkable about de Gaulle's ability to remain completely opaque, give himself as many options as possible, while everybody believes that actually he supports them. Hello and welcome to this week's pod. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Now after Tuesday's bonus episode on top 10 families of world history, I'm a bit breathless because Seabag got involved in the Twitter and then a whole load of people waded in with their suggestions. Most wanted the Habsburgs included, which to be fair to them, they're a decent family, so make the subs bench. As for the many suggestions for Roman families to be included, that's a straight no. Apologies to Peter Stothard, but it's Greeks first and last, and Romans nowhere. Anyway, that's enough of that. On to this week's pod, which is a fascinating chat, if I do say so myself, with a legendary historian, Lawrence Friedman. He's written a new book, Command, The Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine, in which he looks at the personalities involved in various wars, and so we chat about some of the famous ones, such as Vietnam and the earlier French one in Indochina, Algeria, which is the subject of one of my favourite films, The Battle of Algiers, the Falklands, and many more recent conflicts, including Iraq. We also discuss individuals such as Douglas MacArthur, the American general in the Pacific at the end of World War II, and after that, various French commanders who, amusingly, and we only hint at this, seem to need the key qualification of being attractive. At Dien Bien Phu, the disastrous French defeat in the Vietnamese jungle in 1954, in the French position, each of the ten hills was named after a girlfriend of the commander. Now, I do not condone this behaviour. Now, we do mention Algeria, as I say, and I just wanted to make sure you'd be aware of a couple of French terms that are mentioned. Algérie française was a phrase used at the time of the conflict, in the mid to late 50s, when French residents and those sympathetic to the French presence used the term to describe Algeria. Also, l'état c'est moi, you should be familiar with that. It's what Napoleon said, the state is me. This isn't a discussion about military tactics, though, but about the characters of the politicians and generals that is so key over who wins a war. This book was one of my picks for 2022, and Lawrence is, as I mentioned, a legendary figure in the history world. He's written books such as Strategy, A History, and The Future of War, A History. He served on the inquiry into the Iraq War, which was also known as the Chilcot Inquiry, and he was knighted nearly 20 years ago. Before we uh, get on with the pod, for listeners of this podcast, I can offer you a discount of 50% off an annual subscription to the magazine. So that's only £5 for six issues of Aspects of History, and we also take payments in dollars. Christmas is coming, you might want to gift a subscription. The discount code is... History 50% and I've added that code into the show notes for you. If you can subscribe or review that would be great but in the meantime I'll hand you over to me talking with Lawrence Friedman. Lawrence Friedman welcome to Aspects of History and thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Um, and I was very keen to speak to you because um, having read your book, Command, uh, the, mili- uh, the, poli- the Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine, 
it's it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, there are there are conflicts in here that range from the well-known, such as Vietnam and the Iraq War, to others less well-known, such as East Pakistan. And each one is fascinating in itself. And I, I wanted to ask to start with, what were, the, were there certain criteria you, you used to, to, uh, to pick the conflicts that are in the book? Yes, uh, they were loose, I should say. Um, it wasn't a very scientific process. Um, I think the starting point was first that I was going to look at post-1945. So that was the big decision. Um, there's lots of stuff written about command in the world wars, um, and the historical development of command practices. Uh, but there's, I just have a general feeling that post-1945 military history is, is still not very well developed. Um, so that was my first choice. Second was that though I was bound to have to look at um, the UK and the US, and they're the two countries I know best. Um, the, I didn't want to get myself confined by them, so I wanted to look reasonably far and wide, and I didn't want to be uh, just look at regular armies against regular armies. I mean, there are there are surprisingly there are a surprising number of those sort of conflicts to look at, but obviously there's the, the counterinsurgency operations the uh, colonial operations like Algeria, rebel groups uh, as in the Congo or in Ukraine in 2014. So I wanted to uh, have a variety of types of conflict. And then I suppose the two uh, de deciding criteria were, uh, was, was I actually interested? I mean, uh, these are, oh, I didn't want to go th just through stuff I already knew. So uh, conflicts that intrigued me that I, I needed to know more about. Um, and then could I get good material? I mean, this was a lockdown book. Uh, I could still get hold of books, you know, memoirs and so on, but I wanted uh, something approaching primary material uh, so that um, the sort of authenticity about the language that's being used and, and how the various generals are talking about themselves and their conflicts. Um, so um, I wanted areas where, where there were good digital sources. And it's surprising how much there is now. Really. It, it, it wasn't as difficult as, as it might have been. So um, the combination of these factors, uh, more or less, but there are plenty of others I could have looked at. I mean, I, I did Kosovo, but I could have chosen Bosnia, for example. Um, uh, and uh, uh, but in the end, they were all they were all uh, research topics that kept me interested, which is not actually in a sort of selfish way the first requirement if you're writing a book. And um, I think demonstrated the range of command and civil military relationships that had been uh, since 1945. Well, we we cover there are many different administrations. There are um, democracies, we've got um, dictatorships, um, democracies masquerading as dictatorships and dictatorships masquerading as democracies. Uh, is I wondered, is there a, um, I, I suspect I know the answer, but is there an ideal, um, you know, a, an ideal model between um, military and, and, uh, uh, and, and political leadership that works best? 
Yeah, I think that there's, um, and it depends a lot on personalities. And one has to say that even the best models can make screwed up decisions. I mean, it, it, it's uh, structure doesn't always guarantee a, a good strategy. Um, so I think the best models are those where there are clear civilian and military competencies that they understand their distinctive roles, but they talk to each other. And part of the book was to challenge the idea that the ideal uh, relationship is one in which the politicians provide the objectives, the civilians provide the objectives, and the military set about implementing them with as little interference as possible from the politicians. I don't think that works. I think um, you, you both need to be respectful of each other's judgment, uh, but the politicians really need military advice when deciding on what's achievable, what objectives make any sense. And the, and the military can't really grumble if, if politicians are looking a bit over their shoulder um, when they're the ones who are going to be answerable um, if the whole uh, operation fails. So, um, and, and there's questions to ask. And I think, you know, I think I, I tend to assume in, in good diplomatic Sorry, I tend to assume in good uh, policy making with any organization, the challenge and criticism, uh, if there's time for it, tends to produce better decisions. I think one has to be realistic about it as well, that uh, you know, some decisions are going to be very lonely ones uh, for both politicians and commanders. Uh, they're the ones who have to take the responsibility. But um, the, the extent to which you can have an informed conversation between the two spheres, I think, by and large, uh, makes a better chance of a of a better uh, decision. And we can pretty clearly see some pretty awful decisions that were taken as a result of, of that lacking. Well, I thought we, we could just drill into a few of, of the conflicts that are in the sure. book. And, and we'll kick off with uh, the first one, which is Korea, which should I, I mean I think should be much more widely known because it was a, a major war and it was yeah. the, the only time I'm aware of and you, you'll probably correct me but it's the only time I'm aware of where the the Americans under the auspices of of the UN invaded China and well, um, no, no they didn't quite invade China um, they got close to China oh did they not inc oh, oh right so the, the the issue with Korea was that the um uh after the North Koreans had been pushed out of the South uh, and sort of kept on running, as it were, uh, MacArthur um, wanted to unify the country. So the the issue is was at what point, when you get close to the border with China, will the Chinese think that this is getting too close and intervene? And that's what happened. They got too close and the Chinese intervened, as they had been warned was quite likely. And, and MacArthur, though, had this sort of unparalleled power as a, a, a commander for the Americans. No. And and you mentioned respect earlier. He certainly didn't seem to respect Truman, the his 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 superior, his commander in chief. No, which... he didn't respect any. Didn't respect uh, his superiors in uniform either. Uh, he was a law unto himself. I mean, he was um, um, because of the. He, he'd taken the surrender of the Japanese um, uh, after the Pacific War. Um, he was almost revered in Japan 
because of the way he'd uh, re-established the country after the after the Second World War. Um, and it had great success in the first months of the uh, of the Korean War, where, where it were quite bold moves helped to push the North Koreans back. Um, so it was far more popular than Truman in the country. Um, but um, you know, hubris tends to set in. And um, he trusted his own judgment and didn't test it against anybody else's judgment. It occurred to me whilst reading the book that even though he, he as you say, was more popular than Truman, was he, was he not more, it was inevitable that um, when push came to the sho- push came to shove, the commander in chief, the president would always win over the, the, the general. It was a political judgment of Truman. I mean, he was advised um, that it was high risk. And maybe, you know, in the end, one of the reasons why um, he uh, didn't stand for election again in in 52. Um, So, uh, I mean, in the end, constitutionally, it was clear who won. I think if... And the other factor which tends to get neglected is that um, the other chiefs of staff, the chiefs of staff, uh, were also fed up with uh, with MacArthur. They were worried that he kept on ignoring their instructions, that he that he had there was a rogue uh, aspect, a maverick aspect to what he was doing. So uh, they were quite anxious to put him back in his box as well. So without that, I don't think Truman would have got away with it. And, and if, in a sense, if MacArthur hadn't faltered, if the Chinese hadn't invaded, if the Americans hadn't been put onto the back foot, then um, again, Truman would have probably had to put up with his insubordination. But uh, the stakes had got just too high uh, by um, April 1951, when eventually uh, he was pushed out. Um, well, well, moving on to, um, and I wanted to talk about another um, commander who goes off reservation a little bit later, because uh, they, they, they are in here. Um, but the, 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 uh, the, the conflict in Indochina, um, what is now Vietnam and, and Cambodia, um, I guess it would have been Laos as well at the time. Um, and the French disaster at Dien Bien Phu. And there seems to be this kind of um ideal as of a french commander uh, they, they they all see well for a start they seem to have to be good looking and attractive to women that seems to be a, a prerequisite at the time yes <laughs> yes uh and um the but but they they all seem to have very good qualifications for command and it just seemed to be a breakdown of, of communication between uh, and relationship between commanders both on the ground and 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 more senior levels yes i think that's fair um i think i mean it it, is it's just an interesting way the french generals tended to get written up in the 1950s um but you know the 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 ones in charge of the campaign in indochina um were very distinguished i mean there'd be there's no doubting their personal bravery um or you know that they were sort of knowledgeable about uh, about military matters. The basic problem in in, in Indochina 
was that the government uh, in Paris knew that this was a losing cause um, and um, was basically trying to get the best position within Indochina for anticipated peace talks. Uh, but they never quite worked out what that meant in terms of supporting the, the local commanders, doing what commanders try to do and work out a winning strategy. They never gave them the resources, the political backing, and so on. Whereas the um, Viet, Viet Minh, the communists, understood this all perfectly well. And um, hence the fact that, that uh, General Jiap, in charge of the battle, were, was uh, uh, through everything he needed to at it to make sure he won. Uh, so uh, you can then criticize the generals um, for failing to think through uh, potential communist strategies and for bickering amongst themselves. Uh, it wasn't a united front. And uh, it has been rather distant from the battle. I think they formed views without actually visiting DMBN I mean, They visited it before the fighting started, but they they weren't really keeping track of it um, as the fight developed, uh, especially because there was a point uh, where the French on the ground recovered um, to a degree uh, and with reserves might have been able to, to hold the line for much longer and make things very difficult for the communists. But, but by the time um, the uh, the generals relented on sending reserves, it was too late and the, and the reserves essentially went into captivity. So their, their, their basic judgments were, were pretty poor, um, even given the fact that the situation was, was pretty poor to start with. Well, in the same chapter, we, we, you cover the Battle of Algiers, which features, I think, some um, veterans of, of um, the war in Indochina. Yeah. And again, the government, the French government's objectives differ from the political, uh, from the military uh, leadership. Um, and I wondered, and de Gaulle takes over um, sort of midway through, uh, does, does, had de Gaulle chosen to make, you know, Algérie Française, that if that had been his objective, do you think that the um, the result would have been different? Yeah, good question. Um, so, you know, de Gaulle um, historically, uh, I mean, after uh, as leader of the Free French in 1945, um, um, uh, had been all for holding on to all of them. France's colonial possessions, including in Indochina, which is one reason why the army thought he would be sort of on their side when they helped to uh, install him in power in, in France. Um, but de Gaulle realised that um, though actually his, his generals, they, in this case, delivered a victory, they, they beat the FLN, they... Um, uh, they stamped out the, the pretty brutal methods, stamped out the insurgency, um, but they couldn't really stamp out the political movement for independence. And de Gaulle realised this. Um, it wasn't just I mean, it's one thing when the terrorists uh, are uh, blowing people up in the, in the cafes of Algiers. It's another thing when um, there's just mass demonstrations and strikes 
um, demonstrating the support of of, um, uh, of the Algerian people for, um, for 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 independence. And De Gaulle was shrewd enough to understand that, and he never, and as you suggest, he never. Um, I mean, only once did he utter the words "Algerie Francais" because he um, uh, he didn't want to tie himself. I mean, there's something uh, remarkable about de Gaulle's ability uh, to remain completely opaque, uh, to keep himself, give himself as many options as possible, while everybody believes that actually he supports them. Uh, so he. Um, this sort of gnomic pronouncement that uh, which was one reason why it was such a shock to the generals in that in Algeria when he announced you know in the end um, it wasn't that big a deal if, if Algeria got independence you know given what they've been through and taken all their troops for through this was this was they saw it as a great betrayal so I think uh, uh, De, de Gaulle is a very good example of a political leader who realizes that whatever objectives you've got or even established yourself in this case inherited, um, you've got to judge it against political reality. Can you actually meet them? And if not, you have to make a, a big adjustment, which is certainly what he did. Um, uh, uh, and he did. And one reason he could do it was was by avoiding giving too many hostages to fortune. Well, you've mentioned it was um, a pretty nasty war, and of course it was. It was um, terribly brutal. And I I wondered, I mean, one thing that, that comes out, I, I suppose, is with Western countries, they almost, if, if there's a breakdown in moral uh, authority in a war, that rather destroys it altogether at home it, it, would that be uh, fair to say whereas you know i mean that's not something that putin has to worry about today no not not self-evidently no um yeah i mean so one of one of the reasons for the disaffection the alienation almost between the civil civilians and the military was the belief that um the politicians had knowingly asked the military to sort this out knowing that it wasn't going to be very pretty. I mean, the standard line is, you know, this is not a job for choir boys. Um, and turned a blind eye to it. But, but when public opinion got unhappy, they didn't defend the generals. Um, and um, it, it showed up the, the tension between fighting a, a war in an uncompromising way um, that may produce victory, and um, keeping public support, having a degree of legitimacy to what you're doing. And, and that, um, it's an argument that hasn't stopped. I mean, it's still, you know, it's evident in the French debate to this day um, about the, 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 um, the extent to which the, those who had fought and died and saw their comrades die and and so on, felt betrayed by the, by the fact that the politicians uh, wouldn't uh, accept what they felt they had achieved. Um, so if there'd been a more open discussion, it might well have uh, ended differently. The, the Cuban Missile Crisis is, is, I spoke with Max Hastings fairly recently, right. 
um, the detail and the you know the the the, the difficulties that Kennedy had with his um, his chiefs of staff imply that that was well I don't know I I kind of got the impression obviously there was risks on the ground um, but the 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 sort of rather deranged approach from some of the uh, American generals um, was why we were close to nuclear war but that's reading your book that's not that's I didn't get the same um, the same feeling more more from, you know, uh, as I mentioned, the sort of junior officers on the ground could have easily have um, prompted a war. I think it, it, I mean, what interested me about Cuban Missile Crisis was that the president clearly wanted a restrained approach. Um, and he made that clear. I mean, he didn't want any sort of inadvertent escalation. Um, and in the end, of course, you are dependent upon um, the common sense of um, the local commanders. And um, you can argue that in the end, that's what happened, uh, though there were you know, some, some tense moments. Uh, I mean, it seems to me at the senior levels, um, although Kennedy was intensely irritated, by what the chiefs, the chiefs of staff of the May and so on. Um, in the end, the system still worked. Uh, they, they didn't. You know, they did their constitutional duty. That they, they, they uh, managed the forces professionally and so on. The system was looked more likely to break down on the Russian side than the on the Soviet side than on the American side because you'd sent these poor submariners out into incredibly inhospitable situations without giving them very much by way of decent orders um uh and then you know the, the, they were hounded by the, the american anti-submarine fleet uh and there are these famous incidents that may or may not have happened as described uh but but you know illustrate the fact the potential was there uh where you were dependent upon um restraint being shown at a very low level um which it was in the end uh you know i mean i mean the, you know the, the cuban missile crisis you either say god how close it was or yeah in the end it didn't happen because people realized just how high the stakes were and um, when restraint was necessary exercised it yeah yeah the, the system worked and 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 they had a jazz band when they needed one. Yes, that was a, a, it's, a, it's, a it's a nice note that, that in order to reassure the, 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 the Soviet submariners that there wasn't a, a war going on, the American uh, uh, destroyer had, had, a, had a jazz band uh, play, um, which uh, just, according to the Soviet captain irritated him that he had to tell one of his uh, crew officers stamping his foot <laughs> to the music. Um, but was that a bit of a master trick? Just going back to the the, the leadership um, in, on the American side, was it a bit of a master stroke of Kennedy to only have Maxwell in the um, uh, the XCOM meetings, or he would only have ever had Maxwell in those in those meetings rather than people like May. Well, you've got to understand that the, the, the reasons that XCOM existed, which was not a decision-making body, it was an advisory body. Um, if he wanted to make a decision, he'd, he'd have fewer people 
in a room, sometimes just his brother. Um, but um, you know, so he he had uh, you know small meetings with uh, um, Admiral Anderson, who was actually uh, the chief of naval operations. Uh, so the point about XCOM was um, uh, advisory and to debate the issues out for him. So I don't think he would have found it particularly helpful to have too many military there because they would all have said the same thing anyway. The problem was that Maxwell Taylor was Kennedy's appointment. So it's never clear how much the other chiefs uh, wholly trusted him. Um, uh, and they were in a, you know, this, this is a collection of guys all with, you know, stellar war records, um, who'd seen it all. Um, and, you know, effectively they're dealing with a, a guy who was a junior officer, uh, you know, in charge of PT boats. So, so um, the, 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 they, uh, and it screwed up over the Bay of Pigs and always seemed to them to be a bit wind, windy, you know, too soft and so on. So this, this, this wasn't something new this relationship. In the end, though, they they they, they didn't. One, one interesting exception, which I mentioned, it's not wholly an exception, is that um, the, the head of Supreme, uh, Strategic Air Command made a public message, well, a message that, that was the was bound to be noticed by the Soviet uh, when he when he went on to higher alert status which could have been seen to be provocative. But, but the fact that he went on to higher command status was, was, was agreed. It was an agreed policy. It, it almost seems with, with, the, um, with uh, the military's disdain for civilian leadership. I mean, Kennedy, yes, he was a junior commander, but he had fought in the Second World War. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like a civilian leader can't win, you know, even even if they need to have a military record to be respected by. Um... It was a, a difficult. Remember also Kennedy followed Eisenhower, who, um, you know, he and MacArthur were the two great, very contrasting uh, commanders of the of the. Uh, of the Second World War, and you know, as well Eisenhower rather than MacArthur was the one who became president. Um, um, so he just didn't seem to these guys to be in the same league. Uh, although you know, Eisenhower was, at, in, in terms of crisis, as cautious as Kennedy was, um, but he had a more, just a more confident judgment. Kennedy was very apprehensive. I mean, he, you know, he, 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 he. he almost thought that he'd come to power uh to be the one to decide on armageddon you know it, it, it was uh, it, it was that sort of scary so um uh i think the I mean, the chiefs picked that up i mean the, 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 they uh they didn't like it um i think and also you've got a fellow like curtis lemay who, you know, it's almost a strange Livian caricature, you know, despite, you know, it, it's clear, I've just read another book about the Pacific bombing campaign, uh, an extraordinarily gifted commander, I mean, not 
tool, like the strategy adopted, which was quite a cruel one in century bombing of Japanese, but very, but, but clearly had a grasp of command. Yet he'd almost, uh, they'd almost turned into caricatures um, of themselves by by this stage. In the, uh, in the, uh, and, and the real crisis of civil military relations was not particularly over the Cuban Missile Crisis, but over the extent to which they had taken advantage of the unavoidable degree of delegation of responsibility with all the nuclear stuff um, to put themselves in a position where they could be deciding uh, on whether there was nuclear war or not, and if there was a nuclear war, whether it was going to have any restraints on it at all. Well, so far we've talked um, French and, and um, American leaderships, and I was speaking with Barney White Spunner um, in the context of actually the, the partition of India in 1947. Right. The fact that the, um, you had uh, many troops on the ground confined to barracks during this sort of horrific slaughter going on. Um, but but we, we kind of went off on a tangent. And was, he, he started talking about um, the differences between France, um, the US and British um, um, structures of, of military leadership vis-a-vis -vis the the civilian um civilian um political leadership and he he was saying that he thought the british do it of the three probably were the weakest of the three because whilst the america the american um military leadership um is given sort of carte blanche um when they are uh, on the ground the french have more of a presence in the elysee palace and and with the prime minister as well whereas the british there's a sort of mutual dis, uh, distrust between um civilians and, and 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 the military so i wondered what your thoughts were on 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 that well a lot of it may depend on personalities and, and sort mm. of timing i mean i would say under the falklands terry lewin uh, the chief of defence staff uh, played the war cabinet brilliantly, including the prime minister. Uh, you know, he was respectful. He explained things, um, but he was pretty forceful with his advice. Um, and you know, argue Charles Guthrie um, as chief of defence staff with Blair at the time of Kosovo. No, the relationship was pretty good, um, you know, and Barney was sort of in senior positions, probably less good um, with um, you know, Brown uh, and Cameron in different ways were, were, were not great with their generals. Uh, uh, and, I, and I think there's, um, you know, neither of them were people who um, had had much to do with the military up to the point where, you know, they suddenly found themselves having to take quite big decisions. So there's, there's sort of an issue there of um, a political interest. Um, yeah, I mean, I, oddly, I think we'll, we may well find that John, Boris Johnson's relationship with generals was pretty good because he quite, you know, was interested in what they did and, um uh you know the, the uk was taking a pretty proactive role on ukraine not obviously not fighting 
uh, you know, it's hard to imagine, for example, that Sunak is going to take similar interest because um, that's not his thing. He's, you know, he looks at numbers. So uh, I, an awful lot depends on personalities as much as structures, I think would be my, my basic argument. So you can have, I mean, civil military relations in the US sort of broke down in some ways during Clinton. Um, uh, not particularly with the, with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, but I mean the military really didn't like Clinton. You know, they, they hadn't inducted military service. Um, uh, he didn't live to the highest standard. He was seemed to be saying um, what he said depended on who he was talking to. All of these things meant the civil military relations were very poor then. And does it make a difference if a politician is um, sort of centre left, left? Because I, I guess military, um, one would assume they tend to be a little bit more sort of centre right. You would assume. Um, I don't think. I don't think I, I don't really see that uh, as an issue um, in the in the. Um, certainly in the campaigns I was looking at. I mean, you know, Blair you know, famously was uh, could get quite belligerent. Um, uh, the other politicians could be quite, uh, Cameron was quite cool, not quite cautious enough in, in, in Libya. Um, but I think the politicization of the military was more an American phenomenon than a than a British one, um, and obviously at one point a French phenomenon as well. Uh, and it's and there's normally very specific reasons for the disaffection. Uh, I mean, in the, you know, France, the, it was the case that the military felt they'd done the dirty work, and uh, and uh, then we'll, we'll, we'll just become an embarrassment. And all their dirty work was to no avail anyway, because the, the cause was betrayed. Um, it, it, with Johnson in Vietnam, um, the military um, did what they could with the restraints that were given. And it was really more later that this sort of critique that, that it was it was all unnecessary political interference took hold. Um, uh, but I don't think I don't. I mean, although it's undoubtedly the case now, or was the case, I think Trump changed quite a bit. The 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 the, the military was sort of Republican leaning in the state. Um, I don't think that is as definite now. Um, uh, and I think that probably. I mean, I don't think it was ever quite as true in the UK either. Hmm. Um, well, I, I did. I, I mentioned, I think I've referred to Ariel Sharon. I want, wanted to speak about him because um, he was certainly an extraordinary figure. Yeah. Um, and I was re reading that chapter. Um, at one point, Sharon talks about um, the uh, receiving orders, what, what, how, how he views yeah. orders. And he says, well, you know, the order's good is if it is for the good of the state. And I couldn't help um, sense there was a certain sort of Napoleonic l'état c'est moi. No. Is, is that, um, 
Sharon really was sort of a law unto himself, similar to MacArthur then, was he? Yeah, um, not quite a senior when he was in uniform. Um, uh, but, uh, I mean, Sharon's a fascinating, complicated character. He's not a simple man to read. He was clearly a very gifted commander, uh, had loyal subordinates, um, uh, tried to take care of his men, um, but he was also reckless and had this um, uh, supreme confidence in his own judgment and was, was totally, I mean, in, instinctively insubordinate uh, because he believed unless you were close to the battle, you couldn't understand it. I mean, that was the basic point of his whole approach, the, the, the if you try to control a battle from a distant headquarters, you were bound to get it wrong. So uh, give your your subordinates the latitude, which is a sort of a general approach that people like to adopt now, but it has problems. And, and uh, Sharon illustrated some of the problems, one of which is, you know, how, how do you coordinate um, uh, different commanders with different, uh, each with their own division, but fighting, it seems, different wars? Uh, how do you divide scarce resources between them? Um, when they're both vying for a position, who do you put first? And these sort of issues can only be handled by the centre. They, they can't be delegated. So um, MacArthur's approach, which in a sense, you know, the, uh, what's good for the state uh, as the first question, is not up to him. I mean, in, in in the Israeli system as in ours, it's the, the senior political authority decides these matters, um, not him. Uh, uh, but but you know, the, the, that was part of the arrogance with which he operated. So the, the, the politics of, of Sharon are fascinating. So long as um, he could be controlled to a degree, then he was incredibly effective. Uh, but as soon as he became Minister of Defence himself, um, uh, he was appalling because there was nobody holding him back and, and questioning his judgment. Well, yes, in, in 1982, I was reading um, uh, and uh, watching an interview with Ronan Bergman, the um, yeah. Israeli journalist, who, who described a, an order given by Sharon to, and, and I think it was verified, it was um described by a, a senior commander and verified by a second that Sharon had ordered the downing of a commercial airliner uh, in 1982. And I, I mean, you know, when you look at his, his, uh, is the order a good, good for the state? And that order was ignored, I think. Yeah. Um, I yeah. don't know if it was sort of outright disobeyed, but, um, but that does suggest, you know, a completely warped uh, approach to what's good for the state and what isn't. Um, yes, um, I mean, he had, he, he was a schemer, you know, he, he had, um, uh, he had plans, um, and I think, and that's what made him an audacious general, is, is that he could work out plot lines, uh, if you like, and, um, uh, 
and on that and on that basis, um, he could you know work out cause and effect that if he did this, the, the enemy general would be caught out that way, and uh, and it would work, which was fine if you just you know working within the confines of a battle. Not so good if you're um, in, in a high political role and you believe you're manipulating somebody else's political whole political system, which is where it went wrong. So so he had um, he, he he believed you know in the, in the sort of the decisive act. Which is a problem of men of action, you know. The, 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 if you just do this one thing, it'll be transformational in itself. Um, and uh, he was wrong. <laughs> uh, I mean, so, if it, in a contained space, in the contained bit of part of the conflict, he could be very effective because he 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 was prepared to take to take risks and be bold. But it, but in a uh, in other circumstances, um, uh, when he was you know, given a high political role, not so much. I mean, it, it proved disastrous. Um, um, yeah, it's a key thing that, you know, why you need politically aware generals, but generals not necessarily in charge, is unless you understand politics well, uh, which he didn't. I mean, he didn't understand Lebanon. Um, then uh, you trample on all the wrong toes and you uh, you try to push people in a place or assume they're going to get to a place, as with the uh, the phalanges, the, with the Christians, but they're never really going to go. And plenty of people who knew Lebanon were telling him that. But he sort of always had these, um, you know, he was a schemer. Well, um, with the, there's so many... Um fascinating um conflicts to talk uh, talk about more but we're, we're running out of time but I, I just wanted to cover a couple more sure, um a sure. couple more things um now you, you do go into the falklands into uh, quite a bit of detail um for obvious reasons i know you've you've written um extensively on that but um it seemed to be there were so many uh, that as you mentioned before the relationship between um uh, uh, politicians and 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 the and this and the military was was good but there were so many uh what ifs throughout that um throughout that bat uh, that that war that yeah. one small thing goes another it goes one way and um it could have easily been a defeat for the british even margaret thatcher speaking to um uh leech Leach persuading her to, to even yeah. go down to the Atlantic. Yeah. Had she not done that, would she have even won eight, in 83? Oh, would she even have stayed in power in 82? I mean, I mm. Think mm. she stood up on the Saturday, um, which I remember listening to, um, on the uh, 3rd of April, and um, uh, could announce that a task force would be sent. Uh, and if she hadn't been, and if all she'd said is that, you know, we're talking to the Americans and we'll impose sanctions, then she could well have been out. Um, so uh, that particular intervention by Leach was probably, you know, one of the most important ever in British political history by a military officer. Uh, so, well, you do have an option, Prime Minister. Um, I mean, I was and, and te technically, he overstepped the mark there, didn't he? Technically, overstepped the mark. Uh, well, he didn't. He didn't overstep the mark by saying. You can send a task force. Um, I mean, that was good military advice. 
he overstepped the mark by saying you should send a task force, uh, which he recognized was overstepping the mark. And she asked him why, and he gave his reasons, um, which were highly political and patriotic and went beyond the purview of military advice. But I don't think that, I mean, what his, the, the advice was, here's an option that the Ministry of Defence was telling you you don't have and you do have. And if you're going to take this advice, don't do it by halves. You, you've really got to do it properly. You've got to send everything you can because you've no idea what you'll need. And did Margaret Thatcher appreciate how close the war was? Because I know you've spoken with her. We spoke with yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I think all of those involved um, were aware of things that have, could have gone badly wrong, of which, you know, anything happened to one of the carriers, that would have been it. So they were very conscious of, of that, the consequences of um, a troop ship going down or something. I mean, all of these things were uh, were discussed. They never quite lost the initiative. Um, so you didn't ever quite have a, a moment other than the, you know, sort of the original invasion um, um, where the um, um, where it looked like uh, you know we we were trying we were playing catch up again. Um, I mean, dislodging Argentine forces from the Falklands is obviously a massive undertaking in itself. But in each step along the way, the British seemed to know what they were doing, and if they didn't quite, they got away with it anyway. Um, uh, uh, and so. Politically, that was quite important, but everybody involved was well aware of how it could go badly wrong. Um, and I think that was important in, you know, producing some quite sober decision making. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't, there weren't, I mean, again, some argued at the time, we don't need the Falklands, you know, this is the whole thing is pointless. And that was a, a political judgment to make, but given you'd made the alternative political judgment this was unacceptable. Um, it, it, they were pretty sober about how they went about their business. Well, we're, um, you also cover the invasion of Crimea in 2014. Um, and we're now, you know, in this ghastly conflict at the moment and seemingly um, no immediate end in sight. How do you think, um, Zelensky, I'm just quite interested if you if you've got a sort of any way of knowing how Zelensky deals with his commanders because he's obviously got this sort of great um, support amongst his people. Putin, we know we know about, and so much has been spoken about that. But I'm just interested in Zelensky and his his relationship with his um, his soldier his commanders. It's different. It's quite different, um, uh, and. I think we need to know more about it, to be honest. I mean, Zelensky's got no background in military affairs. And um, his key role has been a political role, an absolutely vital one, both of uh, sustaining morale amongst his people and badgering allies for weapons, not officially allies, but badgering his supporters for more support, uh, better equipment, more ammunition, and so on, which he's getting he's done very effectively. Um, yeah, you know, there are rumours that he's um, 
actually a bit wary of his chief of uh, general staff as a potential political opponent in the future, which is quite normal in these circumstances. Um, but in the end, they're in a war and um, they have to win it. So I think he gives the military quite a lot of latitude. I don't, you don't get the sense that he's interfering a lot in, uh, in sort of detailed, uh, you know, hold this territory, don't hold that. Um, although I'm sure he's consulted because it's one of the things you do as a general. You make sure that you're not operating um, sort, of, sort of on your own, that, that you can show that these difficult decisions were shared with the politicians. Otherwise, if things go wrong, you're, you are very much on your own. So um, as far as one could tell, the systems work pretty well, not perfectly, but pretty well. Um, and, you know, they've had the advantage, although they've had some really, I mean, really grueling and difficult battles, um, actually, though in individual encounters, they occasionally come off worse, by and large, again, similar point to the Falklands, they've sort of held on to the initiative since the early days of the war, um, uh, uh, in a much more unequal situation. I mean, it, it is quite a remarkable performance by Ukraine. It really is. And and just, just final thing before we go, do you, You've mentioned the Falklands. That was an overwhelming victory. It yeah. is a, is a victory, maybe not on on that. That it's a obviously it's a completely different um, uh, geography. Um, but is is the prospect of 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 a victory over Russia now a realistic prospect? Because I don't think we would have thought that two months ago, would we? Well, I was always reasonably confident. Well, I was always confident that that Russia would wouldn't win. I mean, Russia losing is a slightly different proposition. Um, and I don't think, I mean, that, that's certainly not a done deal by a long stretch of the way. I mean, it, 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 it's a very grueling fight. Um, the basic issue for I mean, that the, the we're all grappling is uh, at what point does Ukraine, at what point does Russia realize that, 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 that this is just game that's not worth it anymore um that the losses are too high and my concern is it, it's quite a long way down the line before they realize that but i mean you know the, there are you know two or three there's three fronts at the moment all of which um the ukrainians are in a slightly stronger position now um and one of them it wouldn't be surprising to see a breakthrough quite soon. And in those circumstances, you know, that question is, again, how long can the Russian military, who've lost an awful lot of officers and uh, equipment and reputation and soldiers, how, how long can they keep this going? Um, so I think in the end, the balance is with Ukraine, but it's very difficult. And, and if this does drag on, um, then you can imagine the, the, the uh, pressures growing uh, on Zelensky. But, you know, the fact is, um, you know, Russia has shown no interest in negotiation. I think one of the real difficulties we've got now is that 
because although Putin can't win, he really doesn't want to lose. And he and he'd rather um, it's more important to him, if I get this right, it's more important to him to be seen not to be losing um, than uh, than to win. Uh, you know, he, he, he survival in power depends on um, there still being something to fight for. The key, essentially, his interest is in keeping the war going, which I find a sort of disturbing conclusion. But I think that's where he is. So you really are, in the end, very dependent upon whether or not the Ukrainians can have more battlefield successes. And that's the only way I can see as bringing this war to to a conclusion. Well, we have to hope that happens. Well, Lawrence, thank you so much. It's been absolutely uh, a real pleasure speaking to you. A good talk to you. And thanks for the review as well. It was a nice review. A pleasure. I'm now going to leave the military stuff for a bit, and we're going to have Leander de Lalon talking about Henrietta Maria, wife of Charles I, and so part of two great families, the Stuarts and Bourbons. I've also got Tessa Dunlop on the early courtship and life of Elizabeth and Philip, and I've also got Peter Hughes on where our society is headed if we don't heed our history, and a bonus episode in December on top 10 movies with distinguished and award-winning director Tim Hewitt. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe and review if you can. Thank you and good night.